0: Is an Odyssey original.
1: This is KX in depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman.
2: If the January 6th committee is looking for its so called John Dean moment, it could come tomorrow. Former White House counsel Pat Cipollone is set to answer questions about what he knew about efforts to overturn the 2020 election. We go in-depth into whether this could be the smoking gun testimony that leads to criminal charges. Boris Johnson will soon be out as the UK's Prime Minister, All those scandals finally catching up with him. We'll look into how this could impact British-American relations, especially when it comes to dealing with Russia.
1: Remember when the doctors said the mRNA vaccines were great because you could update them quickly? Well, we're still waiting for those updates and we're getting closer to the fall. Airlines seem to be getting their act together, at least a little bit better than things were. The delays, cancellations, easing. Uh, but could they have fixed this sooner? We'll take a look back at the life of actor James Caan. Godfather Starr died at the age of 82, leaving behind a large legacy. And Brad Pitt, everyone recognizes him, but he apparently has a problem recognizing others. It's a, a medical strange, condition. Strange story. Yeah, so we'll talk about that.
2: You know, and you mentioned uh, the airports. So uh, the other day I was at the Minneapolis airport, big airport. Day after July 4th, And looking at the board, and I didn't see any cancellations, any. And the day before, they were canceling left and right. And you do have to wonder, what was magically fixed in 24 hours? Full <laughs> schedule
1: 5th of July. Congratulations, everyone.
2: <laughs> All right, we'll get into that a little bit later. We start, though, with Pat Cipollone's upcoming interview with the January 6th committee. David Katz is a criminal defense attorney and former federal prosecutor. David, thanks for being with us. So uh, we mentioned at the top that this could be the John Dean moment. John Dean, of course, uh, famous for uh, exposing a lot of what was going on at the Nixon White House back in the day. Uh, do you think that's the case here? Could it be?
3: Uh, I certainly think so. I believe there have been some smoking guns already. I think they've already made out a clear case for federal criminal indictments against uh, Trump, Giuliani, and several others. There was the very impactful testimony of Cassie Hutchinson, the 25-year-old insider, uh, the aide who had her office right down the hall from her boss Meadows, the chief of staff, and from Trump. But this one, yes. He actually had the same job. Pat Cipollone had the same job as John Dean. He was chief White House counsel. He was the top legal advisor uh, to Trump. You know, people think of Giuliani as his lawyer, but this is the real White House counsel, the one who was there to be the top advisor to Trump. He's a total loyalist. He was the lead defender of Trump during the first impeachment trial in the Senate, you'll recall. Um, He'd actually been with Bill Barr in the Bush administration before that. But despite all of that, he knows a bunch of really uh, blockbuster negative testimony. Now, whether he can give some of it at the very end of the day, um, either whether he will because he'll claim attorney-client privilege or whether um, he'll be able to give it in court, that's another question. But a lot of it clearly is not attorney-client privilege, either because it was within the crime-fraud exception that Trump was planning to commit a crime or a fraud, it seems more likely than not. And therefore, there is no attorney client privilege for communications in furtherance of a crime or a fraud. Not an historical one, not seeking advice for something that happened before, but an ongoing one. But some of it maybe don't go to the Capitol, for instance, maybe within the attorney client privilege. But a lot of it isn't. Also, a lot of other witnesses were around who are not lawyers and who are not necessary to give legal advice. And therefore, they will break the privilege, as we say.
1: So what does the committee try and get him to do? Back up these quotes that that Cassidy Hutchinson gave or say that, hey, I warned Donald Trump not to do X, and he did that anyway?
3: Well, that's a great question. Uh, And uh, he can back up an awful lot of things. He also has some telling phrases that he himself said. And, you know, when he tells something to Cassie Hutchinson, she's not a lawyer. That's not in furtherance of giving attorney-client advice. So a lot of that stuff that people said, oh, well, maybe that's hearsay in a court of law from her, uh, it'll be direct testimony from Cipollone because he heard it come out of Trump's mouth. That's an admission by Trump that would be admissible not only in Congress but in a court of law. He's the one, Pat Cipollone, who said this was a murder-suicide pact if you have Clark send this letter claiming there's been fraud in elections, send it out to seven states where there had not been fraud. He said that would be a murder-suicide pact, the idea being that Clark would murder his own career, uh, but he would also be committing, a, well, he'd be committing suicide in his own career, but he'd also be murdering them because um, it would be so baseless. Right. There'd well, be no basis for I, it whatsoever.
2: I, okay, but I, want, but I want to go back for a second uh, briefly to the lawyer-client privilege issue, because as White House counsel... Doesn't he didn't he represent not Donald Trump, but the White House, the office of the presidency? And therefore, isn't he really kind of, I don't know, America's counsel?
3: Well, that's a great question. And he is America's counsel. At the same time, when the president asked him a question, uh, I believe that he can have attorney client privilege if it's truly to seek advice. And if you think about it, that's in the public interest. Let's assume that all the that Cipollone knew about this and he knows an awful lot more and he heard an awful lot more that's incriminating of Trump. But let's assume the only thing that happened was that Trump said to him, do you think I should march to the Capitol or not? And he said, no, Mr. President, if you march to the Capitol, you will be charged with every crime imaginable. You'll be charged with obstruction of justice. You'll be charged with subverting a due congressional process. Um, And and then Trump didn't go. And at the end of the day, I mean, Trump's going to say, I didn't go. He grabbed the steering wheel and tried to go, but he didn't go. We want that. We want a lawyer to give advice to somebody, and we want a person to go to a lawyer for advice, right, and to be told, don't go to the Capitol. So I believe that particular statement is within the attorney-client privilege, even though he was, as you say, the attorney for the United States. As White House counsel, um, he had the confidential, he, he has confidentiality with the president on something like that. But it goes way beyond that, because he kept telling him to call off the events. <clears throat> I told you about sending out the letter where he said that they shouldn't send out the letter. He also told a lot of people he'd resign if Clark was jumped over the other Department of Justice officials. Not only would they all resign, but Cipollone, who was not at DOJ himself, that he would resign. Right. Tell that that's something that's definitely admissible. And then the whole thing with um, confirming Hutchinson and confirming this fellow Jason Miller. Remember, Miller testified that Cipollone had confronted... For David, we're,
2: we're running out of time, so I'm going to cut you short. <laughs> but, but as always, it's great to have you on.
1: David Katz, criminal defense attorney, former federal prosecutor.
2: Right now, though, major news out of the U.K. is Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he is resigning as head of his country's conservative party. Now, that means soon, I guess the definition of soon is what we'll explore, no longer be prime minister. It's a major shakeup following recent scandals. With us now from the UK, uh, a friend of the show, as always, Darren Adam, presenter on LBC Radio out of London. A new voice for us, uh, Jack Kessler, writer, columnist, and author of the Evening Standards West End Final Newsletter. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Jack, let me start with you since you're, you're, you're the new guy in the block. Um, why now? Uh, Boris Johnson has survived, up till now, innumerable scandals. What brought this one to a head?
4: Hello. Um, it's a good question. It's a fair question, because he has um, really, throughout his entire life, before he even entered politics, um, survived and possibly even enjoyed various scandals. The, uh, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back involved um, a member of parliament that even most people in the UK haven't heard of a man called Chris Pincher, who was the deputy chief whip who resigned from his post roughly almost exactly a week ago. Um, this moment, um, he resigned saying he had drunk too much. Um, and what happened was he allegedly, um, assaulted, um, two men in a, uh, a drunken incident in a club. And, um, the problem stemmed from what, what really followed from that rather um, distressing episode, which is that uh, it transpired that this wasn't the, seemingly not the first time such an event had occurred. And the Prime Minister Boris Johnson knew about this and um, still promoted him to that deputy chief whip position. So there was an element of as as um, as, a, as unpleasant as the alleged crime was, there is an element of cover-up, making things uh, much much worse for the prime minister.
1: So, Darren, are we just at the point of, of one too many lies from Boris well, Johnson, yeah, I, and it caught up to him eventually?
5: I, I think. I think, with the Pinscher incident, it was exponentially worse within a few days because Johnson had lied about the lies and lied about what he knew and lied about what he didn't knew I, I didn't know and worse, the number ten Downing Street press, press office was briefing ministers of the government to go out onto the TV shows over the course of the weekend who themselves had been lied to, so they were having to defend lines that they were given by Number Ten, which turned out to be nonsense. Boris Johnson is a man who is infused with lies. He has lied and lied and lied throughout his personal life, throughout his professional career. He was fired from his first job on The Times newspaper for making up a story. You can say that it's priced in with Johnson, but once you get to a stage where his own ministers feel that they can't work for this man because they can't bear the stench coming off him anymore, that really is when the game is up. And that's what's changed in the last few days because, as I say, endless lying coming out of that man's mouth for decades and decades and decades. But when other people working for him, loyalists, are made to look incredibly stupid, as they did, because they're defending the lies... That's the point at which everything crumbled.
2: Okay, so now back to you, Jack. I said at the uh, the outset that he soon, and I, I emphasize that I guess the definition of soon is, is up in the air, will be out as prime minister. The system, of course, in the U.K. is much different than it is here in the States. So he resigns as head of the Conservative Party. Doesn't necessarily mean he's out the door as, as PM anytime soon?
4: Um, that's right. So the line is that I mean he could be around until um, autumn, and um, there is always some debate about when exactly autumn is. Um, but um, the the issue I wouldn't want to sort of bore all your listeners with exactly how the Conservative Party elects its uh, its leaders. But essentially, um, Conservative uh, MPs will whittle down the candidates, and it seems that every single Conservative MP considers themselves a potential. Prime Minister, but they'll be whittled down to two, uh, and that could take, you know, if you expedite that, that could take a, a couple of weeks, and then it, it goes off to Conservative Party members to uh, to vote uh, on on the on the on the favourite of the two. Um, traditionally, that takes several weeks, but um, the Conservative Party may decide that having Boris Johnson as an inverted commas caretaker. For weeks, if not months, is, is so damaging to the Conservative Party's brand and electoral prospects that may, they may decide to hasten the process um, and and have a, have a new leader in by the dog days of summer. But ultimately, Boris Johnson could be there until September, October, until um, Conservative Party conference.
1: Darren, this is a very broad brush thing, but are a lot of people just tired of the guy? I mean, public at large.
5: Absolutely. Well, there are two uh, constituencies, two large constituencies in this divided country. I don't need to tell you what it's like living in a divided nation, of course, but there are those who are die hard hard Boris Johnson fans who lean into the lies, lean into the chaos, who say "He's oh, the funny man on the telly with the funny hair? He makes me go ha-ha. We don't mind his lies. In fact, it adds to his sort of roguish appeal. That's a diminishing and shrinking constituency. The larger and growing constituency uh, are, are comprised of people who've always been fed up with this individual and those who are beginning to see now that you can't have someone like this running a country. We heard there about him being a caretaker leader for the next few months. Many people in this country, even those who vote for him, wouldn't trust Boris Johnson to take care of a house plant, far less a nation, for a period of a few months. And so I think it is different this time. There is a sense that he can't be trusted to be around for the next couple of months, even though precedent has dictated that when a prime minister resigns, they have in the past stuck around until their replacement is found.
2: So a quick answer from either one of you. Is there any other candidate for PM who has hair anywhere near that of Boris Johnson's?
5: Um, I I can think of some women who do. (laughs) That might not be in the spirit of your question. um, (laughs) There are a few other candidates who make such a peculiar virtue of their hair being a mess. I would suggest. Okay.
1: yeah, there you go. All right. Uh, Darren Adam, LBC Radio, London and Jack Kessler, writer, columnist at The Evening Standard. What does it mean to us here at home? Robin Quinville, director of the Global Europe Program at the Wilson Center, also a former U.S. diplomat in the U.K. and Europe. Robin, thank you for being here. So, yeah, that question. I mean, President Biden probably knows some of the people who are going to want this job, not all of them. But do relations ever really change between us and them? That's that whole special relationship thing.
6: Hi, it's great to talk to you. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, I First off, I'd just like to agree with you because this is a change of the Tory party leadership, not a change of government, right? And so what that means is that yes, when the Tory party elects a new leader and that person becomes prime minister, it will still be the same party in government in Britain. So the interest between our two countries Those are perennial and those are areas where we work together very closely over time. And so I think you're very right that those those issues will continue and we will continue to work on those. I know the special relationship sometimes sounds like a cliche, but that's the depth of the way that we work together.
2: I haven't seen and Maybe you have uh, much of a reaction, if any, from the White House. Is that odd?
6: I don't think it's odd, because this is something that is a very much internal politics in, in the UK. And again, it's the strength of that relationship. It's what it shows. I, if uh, if I were in the White House, I wouldn't want to be commenting on the domestic electrum, election and possible candidates uh, in the UK, but rather to rely on. What we do together and that continuing
1: yeah you defaults to one of those lines where saying well this is part of their process right this is how they do things <laughs> and right. we must respect all that um boris johnson is celebrated in ukraine he's been there uh president Zelensky and him talk all the time does anything change do you think on that front uh
6: no i don't think so this is one of those areas where this is a domestic dispute more, uh, much more than it is a dispute over foreign policy and so I think that there's there's strong agreement, including within the, within the Conservative Party, about the approach to Ukraine and support for that. This is a dispute that has a domestic focus. So we just are coming off of a uh, bonanza week for summits. And there was the G7 summit, and then there was the NATO summit. And all of that was designed to show the incredible the unity of response by the transatlantic community, by our European partners, in support of Ukraine. And so I think that, that you, can, you can expect it to continue. So I'm
2: curious, uh, in terms of uh, leadership in, in Western Europe, uh, if you take sort of President Biden off the table for the moment, because whether or not he runs again, uh, all that is up in the air. But now you have uh, great flux in the UK. Does this strengthen the hand of other European leaders, for example, maybe uh, Fran- the French?
6: Well, France just had two elections, both for president and for parliament, and I think that they are going to be looking inward a little bit uh, as we go forward, because they will want to see whether or not the results of those elections, having President Macron as president, but, but not having the same level of parliamentary support that he had before, how that will affect the governance, both on domestic issues and on European issues. So, yeah, there's some there's some change going on. And of course, Germany's government um, has only been in place for the for the last few months. But again, the issues that they have to deal with, those tend to be tend to be the same. And so I, I would expect that they will continue to have a level of coordination and frankly also with the UK, because they are they are still needing to work out a, num- a number of issues related to the Brexit decision.
1: Robin Quinville, Director of the Global Europe Program at the Wilson Center, former US diplomat in the UK and Europe.
2: This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm
1: Charles Felton. When Pfizer and Moderna said they're using mRNA vaccines to fight COVID, a lot of doctors and scientists said, "Okay, this is great. We love the technology because it's going to allow them to quickly tweak the vaccines as needed.
2: Well, fast forward to now. Omicron has swept through and its variants, BA4 and 5, are taking hold, causing Breakthrough infections as cases surge here in California and elsewhere. But no vaccine out yet to target these sub-variants. Joining us now is Dr. Joseph Costaldo, who is an infectious disease specialist with Ohio Health. Doctor, thanks for being with us. I, I remember very clearly in, uh, you know, the earlier days of this pandemic, having many different medical experts on this show talking about the virtues of m rna vaccines the pfizer vaccine the moderna vaccine and that one of the key selling points was that if variants came along if we needed to tweak these vaccines unlike say the flu vaccine it would be so much easier they said to do this in a fairly quick amount of time but that being said we're still using the original vaccine which was before delta and now we're talking about using an omicron vaccine which was before these variants And by the time the fall comes, who knows what variant, what Greek alphabet letter will be up to. So
0: what happened? Yeah, you're absolutely right, and it's true. When these vaccines first came out, the technology for mRNA vaccines is that you can change them rather quickly. But still, with the supply chain, when you make a vaccine change, it still is going to take at a minimum of three to four months to get the vaccine supply out there to people. You know, what's really challenging when it comes to vaccines, when it comes to all the variants, we're still playing whack-a-mole, trying to predict which variant is going to be the one that's predominantly circulating. You know, I'm looking at the CDC website right now. On June the 4th, BA.5 the was under 10% of what we were seeing in our country. Now it's above 50%. And And uh, by the time we get to October, November, there will likely be a different type of variant that's the predominant circulating strain. So we are playing really much a a -a whack-a-mole. You know, one thing I will say, though, um, the ancestral strain vaccine is still holding up well when it comes to what matters the most. Does the vaccine prevent you from dying? Does it keep you out of the hospital? In the context of being up to date on your vaccines and getting your boosters, the vaccines are still performing well in that metric. Where they're not performing well is in preventing infection. Now, with BA5, this is what we call the Houdini of variants because this is the one that's most uh, even base of uh, um, uh, protection from infection from previous infections and vaccines. But when it comes to being updated in your vaccines, you still have a great layer of protection if you're up to date with your vaccines, meaning that you have got all your boosters.
1: Pfizer and Moderna with their Omicron shot. That was the first go around with Omicron. Do they have time? I mean, three months puts us into the fall to, to do a BA5 or do they hope that, hey, that one will work at least better than our original one from two years ago?
0: Yeah, so what's on the horizon right now is is the introduction of a bivalent vaccine. Uh, the FDA last week said that the guidance is going to be to have a uh, bivalent vaccine containing the spike protein of BA.5 and the original ancestral strain. Now, on the horizon um, is a different type of variant called a BA.275, and that may likely be the one that we see on the horizon. So we, we think that having a, a closer Omicron-specific variant may be better. But, you know, um, we need to get to a different point we need to target really something else besides the spike protein. The spike protein is what's different between all the variants. Uh, Pfizer has announced that they're going to start clinical trials on, on really a different type of um, uh, omnia covering uh, uh, vaccine that's going to cover all coronaviruses that uses a different target besides the spike protein. And that's really where we're not going to need to be.
2: Here's another issue that I'm, And I'm sure our listeners are puzzled about, doctor. Every time there's a new variant, we keep hearing this variant is far more transmissible than the previous one. And then the next one is even more than the we're going to get to the point where we're going to have a variant that you can catch before it's even there. So, I mean, how
1: how if much go outside? Yeah,
2: I mean, it,
0: it, there must be an end
2: point to this. isn't Yeah, there?
0: You're, you're absolutely right. In each variant we've had Delta Omicron, a previous uh, Omicron subvariants, the king of the mountain, the one that's always out there that takes over is the one that's most transmissible. And, and that's true with B.A.5. It, it is the most concerning for transmissibility. It's the most concerning for evasion of immunity from previous infections including Omicron and from vaccines but again just to recap we need for people to be up to date on their vaccines Uh, if you look at the CDC website for example for people above the age of 65 under 35 percent of people have received their second booster dose that is my concern moving forward without people being up to date on their vaccines they may not have that same layer of protection against dying or being hospitalized.
1: Dr. Joseph Gastaldo, Infectious Disease Specialist, Ohio Health.
2: Well, air travel lately has been an adventure, to say the least, for many people across the country. Thousands of flights delayed, canceled the past few weeks. But I mentioned before, Mike, I was at the Indi- uh, Indianapolis, the Minneapolis Airport the other day.
1: One of these places you went? Yeah, one of these places that I went. <laughs> I was somewhere.
2: And, and I was actually kind of surprised, this is on the 5th of July, that looking at the board... I didn't see a single flight listed as being canceled or even delayed,
1: which is a big turn from, I don't know, the day before, three days before Uh, Brett Snyder, author of the cranky flyer blog, director of the cranky concierge air travel service is with us. Uh, So Brett, are things getting better out there?
7: Well, apparently on that day, they were (laughs) (laughs) it's, you know, things were better over the 4th of July weekend. Uh, than they were a little bit earlier in the summer. But that does not necessarily mean that we're in the clear here and that things will remain better.
2: But, you know, it it made me think, and, and granted, this was just one airport, albeit a, a very large one, and one point in time. But it did make me wonder whether some of the issues on the days previous were somewhat being manipulated because it seemed like pilots who were getting sick were all of a sudden doing okay. And the staff shortages seemed to not be having that much of an impact. The planes seemed to be in all the right
7: places. And it does make one wonder, doesn't it? I, I don't think that that's, that's probably not what happened, <laughs> I should say, because there are a few different things going on here that actually could have helped this weekend. First of all, on the ground, the airlines knew that this was a really important weekend. Um, the Secretary of Transportation, uh, he had said to them, "You better get this right. You <laughs> messed up Memorial Day. You better get this right." So they really went above and beyond to make sure that this weekend would go as smoothly as possible. Yeah,
2: but 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 you're just proving my point because if they had the ability even though they were pushed and shoved into doing it.
1: We're being watched. We have to do something.
2: If they they had the ability to amend their ways to make it uh, somewhat more of a a pleasant experience to
7: travel, couldn't they have always done that? Well, I guess we'll find out because sometimes what they can do is they can pull forward. They can pull things forward from later in the month. The way that pilot schedules work as well, and this is particularly important, it restarts every month with the new bid. And so often the airlines will get into trouble at the end of the month when pilots are running out of the hours they're allowed in their contracts or whatever it may be. So July 4th, that's, that's a better place to be because we're at the beginning of the month again, unlike Memorial day, which was at the end of the month. So they tend to have more flexibility, but we'll see what happens as we get toward the end of July. There could be more pain again.
1: Didn't we also get into this trouble because there were plenty of airlines keeping their schedules at a point that they knew they couldn't fly those flights but they sold them anyway
7: well they thought they could fly those flights that was the problem they were wrong (laughs) so that's where we ran into an issue (laughs) whoops can't Uh, take anywhere sorry (laughs) well i mean this is what happened so you know some airlines took bigger bets than others you can look at alaska airlines during the spring they said wow we're not doing so well we're gonna have to cut back this summer they cut back significantly and they've been running just fine this summer, probably the only one. But then you have other airlines like Delta. Delta realized after Memorial Day that they had scheduled too much and they needed to cut back. So they said, we're going to do that. But because of the the advance notice they needed to, to pull it out of the schedule, they couldn't do that until the beginning of July. So June was a lot tougher for them because they waited longer. And now it should be getting better for them because they've cut things out now. So it becomes a matter of. Do you cancel early or do you cancel late? <laughs> What's, you know, how how much do you think you can actually operate?
2: So, Brett, since you're the, the cranky flyer on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the absolute crankiest,
7: where are you? <laughs> well, I would say after June, I, I was pretty close up there to 10. It, oh, it, was, okay. it was not good. And, you know, you, you just see such turmoil for all travelers that are getting stuck in these things. And some of it is the airline's fault. Some of it's not. The FAA is, is significantly understaffed. You have contractors that are understaffed that are catering the airplanes or fueling the airplanes, whatever it may be. Um, And so, you know, just a lot of things going wrong and making it pretty miserable for travelers. Uh, And so that was pretty bad. Now, right now, it seems like we're maybe having a bit of a reprieve, Uh, But I I don't think that we're done here, unfortunately.
1: Right. We we think so much about flight attendants and the guys and the gals flying the thing. But we forget sometimes about, you know, you can go to uh, the check-in counter and there's one person there and there's 10 desks, right? Those are usually mostly full, but now it's one person checking everybody's bags in. And that takes forever.
7: Yeah. And and even that is is somewhat easier to recruit for than, you know, say someone who's doing catering or fueling that doesn't even work for the airlines. They don't even get the flight benefits. And it's the same thing that all these uh, different companies are having all throughout the economy of just keeping people in jobs, the whole great resignation and all that. And so sometimes, you know, the airlines can, can rely on this saying, hey, we have flight benefits, see the world. And some of these other contractors don't even have that. And you still have to deal with the with all the anger. Do you think we'll ever have a great airline system again? Well, I guess it depends on how you define that. So, well, you uh, know, you book a flight, the flight's there. Well, that is, <laughs> so is it's pretty bar.
2: easy. That's yeah, that's yeah, pretty easy.
1: We're not talking uh, <laughs> no, old no. vintage Pan Am videos yeah, or anything. No, no, just take just really me to where I want to go. Yeah, exactly.
7: Like, yeah, it's, it, it, yeah. So I think we can certainly get back toward that place. Right now, the problem is there's just so much unknown. And the airlines could be more conservative than they are being uh, and cancel more flights in advance. But if they do that, fares go up too. So it's this whole delicate balance. And they're just having trouble figuring that out. I think we can get back to a better place. No question about that. But it probably will take a mix of uh, the government pushing harder and uh, the airlines, you know, getting a little more certainty in, in their booking patterns and everything else.
1: Brett Snyder, author of the Cranky Flyer blog, director of the Cranky Concierge Air Travel Service.
2: This is KX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman.
1: Hollywood mourning the death of actor James Caan. Family announced he died yesterday. 82 years old, made a big when he played uh, Sonny Corleone, the Godfather, 1972.
2: Well, that propelled uh, James Caan to stardom. He was in other movies, of course, like Brian's Song. That was a TV one. Misery, among many others. With us to discuss uh, his legacy on the big screen is Jonathan Kuntz, UCLA School of Theater, Film and Television, professor and film historian. Thanks for being with us. Uh, you know, whenever a, a big star uh, dies, uh, everybody always says, well, they made this contribution, that contribution. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's not. What exactly was his contribution, do you think, to cinema? There's a lot of things that we can say James Kahn contributed. First off, in
8: many ways, he's one of our very, very last connections to the golden age of Hollywood. He began his career in the 1960s. He actually appears in a Billy Wilder film. Irma LaDuce is a, in a bit part. He menaces Olivia de Havilland in Lady in a Cage. And then he's really discovered and made into a star by Howard Hawks. And Howard Hawks is the guy that made the best movies of Humphrey Bogart, Cary Grant, John Wayne, Gary Cooper, and who discovered Lauren Bacall. And he puts James Caan in Red Line 7000, but most notably El Dorado up against John Wayne. And that really helped uh, James Conn's career take off. And so in many ways, James Kahn can, you know, is a connection for us back to the golden age of Hollywood.
1: I saw somebody say, you know, everyone goes for the the tough guy image, but he also did, like, tough guy vulnerability. You could watch him explode or you could watch him, like, fall apart on screen.
8: Well, he was amazingly versatile. He was a trained actor, actually. Uh, And uh, he... He was also somewhat of an athlete, which I think helped his career as well. So, of course, we know him from the gangster parts, but he also did comedies and parodies of gangsters. He's even in a musical, Funny Lady, with Barbara Streisand. And he does uh, action films. He does sports films. And he does Brian's Song, one of the most
2: notable television movies ever made. When they say that they don't make them like that anymore, what do they mean? Well, I think... The
8: the way they don't make them like that anymore. They made lots of movies back in the old days on all kinds of subjects. No, no, but I don't.
2: I don't. I'm sorry to interrupt. I I don't mean movies. I mean (laughs) the actual stars. Yeah.
8: Oh well, maybe James Caan kind of came up in in a in an old fashioned way, having studied as an actor, done a lot of theater, and then television in small roles before he really broke through on the big screen. And then his career went through a lot of changes. Of course, he was a big part of the new Hollywood of the 70s with The Godfather and Cinderella Liberty, and a lot of the filmmaker, the new filmmakers of that era loved him. He went to school with Francis Ford Coppola, and he's not only in The Godfather, he's in Rain People before The Godfather for Coppola, and later he's in Gardens of Stone. He also, though, turns his career around. He has he stumbles in the mid 80s, as did so many people of the 1970s. Uh, But by the late 80s and early 90s, he's really made a tremendous comeback as a more mature actor in films like Misery. And he's going to continue even into the 21st century. I mean, his last major role probably was undercover grandpa in 2017, where he's a lead (laughs) grandpa in a movie.
1: Well, there's Elf, too. I mean, how many of like a younger generation know him as, as the dad in Elf?
8: Right, He's in the 2000s. Like so many actors, he kind of reinvented himself for the modern era. He's in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs as a voiceover in a good animation series. And then he's in Elf, playing again uh, now a fatherly role in this period. He also had a good TV series in that period, Las Vegas.
2: There there are, as you know, there are stars who are very good at kind of morphing into different roles, and you don't quite maybe even recognize them from one role to the other. And then there are people, you had mentioned John Wayne before, who no matter what role they play, they're always John Wayne. You know, Humphrey Bogart was always Humphrey Bogart. What category would you put James Caan in? Well, first off, we're going to think of him. Uh, I think, first off, we think of the crime pictures,
8: starting with The Godfather, and then Thief, which is a really really, very special crime picture of the early 1980s. And he could certainly do the menacing crime figure uh, with, with the best of them there. He also, though, does parodies on that. And then there's also the way he kind of turns it all around in a film like Misery, where he becomes the vulnerable person. He was able to do that, and he was able to parody his tough guy image. And he was also able, as he aged, to take, you know, again, much more mature parts where he wasn't the tough guy lead, but was sometimes the, the cranky
2: older guy.
1: Jonathan Kuntz, UCLA School of Theater, Film, TV Professor, and Film Historian.
2: Brad Pitt has one of the most recognizable faces in the entire planet. Who doesn't know who he is if you saw him? If you ever met him, you probably wouldn't forget.
1: If you met him twice, you definitely wouldn't forget, but he probably wouldn't remember you, and it's not because he's like an aloof Hollywood type. He says in an interview with GQ, he suffers from facial blindness, causes him to struggle to remember people's faces. It's a real condition others suffer too. Dr. Howard Krauss, neuro-ophthalmologist at Providence St. John's, that's in Santa Monica. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So, I guess the first thing to point out with facial blindness is it's not blindness. This isn't an eyesight problem, right? This is a brain problem.
9: Exactly. Uh, and uh, people can have perfectly normal vision and seemingly normal brain function, but have this one glitch where they cannot recognize face. Uh, and it's not uh, it's not uncommon. It's estimated that 2% of the population have this uh, from childhood forward. And interestingly, many people don't have the awareness that they have this problem.
2: And and is it what what it sounds like? I mean, in other words, if, if uh, a person who has this, this illness or condition, I suppose, uh, if they see, let's say, you uh, and they met you in your office and, and they talked to you and they saw you a week later, would they not remember you?
9: They wouldn't uh, recognize me from my face. Uh, They they see me in my uh, coat that has my name on it, and they'll they'll recognize that as a cue. But if they bump into me at the supermarket, uh, you know, an hour after having seen me in the office, they'll have no recognition of me. What's Mm -hmm. What's interesting about this condition, you know, as you noted with reference to Brad Pitt, is people who have this condition are often considered aloof or unfriendly by others, uh, because they can walk right by them without recognizing them or acknowledging them. And it's, it's a real social handicap.
1: Where does it come from? Is it, is it, I mean, we have a knack as humans for instantly being able to, to pick somebody, you can pick somebody on a crowd if you know them, right? That's how it's supposed to work. Is it that that part doesn't function the way it's supposed to?
9: You know, there are a variety of uh, defects and degrees of uh, what's called prosopagnosia, uh, and um, for the most part, it's, it's just a failure to look at a face and, and recognize the particular individual. Uh, and it's interesting that if you just look at the face and uh, remove the, the cues that you get from the body and from the hair, uh, and then you take a photograph of that face and turn it upside down, you yourself might not recognize that person. So it seems very natural to us and that we're so accustomed to, to having this, but it's akin to colorblindness. Uh, people who are colorblind don't know they're colorblind until they recognize that somebody has a uh, ability that they don't have or until they're tested for it. People who on a uh, developmental basis have prosopagnosia don't know right off the bat that it's a defect that they have, uh, and they may see Isolated on or until they get older and have some insight to this being the real uh, developmental defect.
2: D- does this work? Let me ask you, does this work also uh, with their immediate families, for example? I mean, is it like Groundhog's Day? Every time you wake up, your spouse is their face is unrecognizable to you?
9: You know, for some people, they won't recognize their own face in the mirror. Um, but, uh, yes, even for a close family member, you won't simply recognize them by their face. On the other hand, you have normal intellectual capacity. So odds are when you wake up in the morning, the person in bed next to you is your spouse. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can recognize uh, other cues in terms of uh, clothing or body uh, some individuals who have spoken of their own prosopagnosia or, or written about it, like the late Oliver Sacks, for example, who wrote so many wonderful vignettes about neurologic disorders, Oliver Sacks himself suffered from prosopagnosia. And he described that he would uh, recognize people by their distinctive eyebrows or the, the glasses that they wore. So he would develop over time particular cues in terms of recognizing certain features that would allow him to distinguish individuals. But just by looking at the face, uh, he would have uh, no idea who he was uh, seeing or addressing.
1: People also probably get really good at, at like, gates or voices and that kind of thing, because you can pick somebody out that way, right?
9: Exactly. And this relates to a specific region of the uh, brain called the fusiform gyrus, which is on the lower side of our brain between the temporal lobe and the occipital lobe, and also closely associated with our, our memory areas. Uh, and uh, why it is that some people are, are born without this ability is not clearly understood, but it is a, a brain uh, disorder. And sometimes it's famil- familial, so that there may be uh, several members of the same family who, who have this uh, problem.
2: Is there any treatment?
9: No, uh the the treatment is mostly by uh developing insights into having this problem, looking for other cues by which you might uh recognize people outside of their uh facial features. Uh and of course for many people it's helpful to uh not be secretive about having this problem so that your your close friends uh and family uh you know won't mistake your uh, difficulties for being one of simply being unfriendly.
1: Dr. Howard Krauss there, neuro-ophthalmologist, Providence St. John's in Santa Monica. Doctor, thanks.
2: It's an interesting condition.
1: The brain is a fascinating thing.
2: Well, I'm the opposite. I I mean, I I could see somebody uh, and like 20 years later, and it's happened to me, and I'll remember... It's you! Yeah, and and sometimes I'll go, I I remember you, and I didn't like you. (laughs) (laughs) Why am
1: I not surprised?
2: (laughs) I know, but I'll remember the face (laughs) and not the name, though.
1: Yes. Odd. All right, that's In Depth for today. Back tomorrow...